This is the Bigger Pockets podcast episode 519er. So I thought today we could kind of go into how someone else can attain that and reach that. Um, my husband and I combined made over $100,000 with my W-2 and his farm income. We were able to reach that net worth with real estate. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, here today with my co-host, the one, the only, the lovely Ashley Care of the Real Estate Rookie Podcast. Ashley, how are you today? Good. Uh, are you surprised to see me today? Well, yes. So I tune in and I'm expecting to see the bearded wonder himself. And instead, I'm getting a much nicer, better looking, <laughs> and frankly, smarter version of him. And as I'm trying to figure out, like, has Brandon been going to a salon? Is he getting some self-care? What's going on? I realize it's not Brandon. So what happened? Yes, he did not shave his beard off. Uh Brandon and I are actually at a self-storage convention in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho right now. And Brandon is just downstairs right now enjoying the lunch hour and sent me up here to take over for him. Well, it's our gain that you're here. So thank you very much for uh, doing this today. Ashley and I are going to get into her story. So we're going to be learning about the five keys that Ashley brings that help you become a millionaire, making less than $100,000 a year at your W-2 job. This episode is full of knowledge bombs. I mean, I said that over and over and over. Really good practical content. This isn't just one of those feel-good stories, although you will feel good. It's very practical and will make you money if you take what we're talking about and apply it. So make sure you listen all the way to the end because I had a great time with you, Ashley. Before we get into the show, I'm going to have Ashley introduce our quick tip for today. Yeah. So if anybody is a rookie investor or wants to get their first property, Bigger Pockets is actually hosting a boot camp where you can learn uh, in 90 days over three months, you can learn how to get started in real estate and basically taking you through the steps, how to you know analyze a market, how to analyze a deal, how to build your team, everything you need to know. There's going to be uh, videos provided by me going over this content. And then we have weekly live sessions where we just do Q&A and then there's a Slack channel where you can network with anyone and ask me questions. So if anybody is interested, we're going to link in the show notes um, where you can sign up to get to the on the wait list for the next uh, boot camp. So make sure that you check that out. The rookie boot camp. Listen, it's not coffee or donuts. It's not campfires or s'mores, not peanut butter or jelly. Great things happen when two good things come together. So why choose between cash flow or appreciation? Rent to Retirement's new construction homes give you both. Rent to Retirement offers newly built homes that attract the best tenants with fewer repairs in outstanding rental markets. That means more monthly cash flow for you and plenty of equity growth in the background. Plus, their creative financing options let you buy investment properties with just 5% down. Not 20%, not 10%, 5% down. Rent to Retirement offers turnkey new construction homes already built, leased, and managed for you. Their investing experts find the best markets that consistently offer double-digit returns and prices as low as $150,000. And they've got more five-star reviews than any company on Bigger Pockets. You invest, Rent to Retirement does the rest. 
To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. It's a simple concept, right? But not necessarily an easy concept. Right now, high interest rates have crushed the real estate market. Prices are falling and properties are available at a discount, which means Fundrise believes that now is the time to expand the Fundrise flagship fund's billion-dollar real estate portfolio. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in minutes by visiting fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're ready to open a business bank account for your new property. You know what that means? Coordinating a time between you, your co-founders, and your bank consultant. Waiting at the branch or waiting for hours on the support line. Who has time for that? With Relay, you can open a business bank account for your property 100% online from anywhere. Create up to 20 accounts to organize money by property or by categories like expenses, taxes, or investments. Effortlessly collaborate with role-specific access. That means giving your cleaner a debit card for cleaning supplies or your accountant read-only access to your transactions. Own multiple businesses? Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access them all from one centralized login. Okay, I'm just, I'm going off script here. That is cool. It's annoying that I have to log into 10 business accounts with my current bank. So go sign up for RelayFi because that's a, that's a feature that I like. No monthly fees or minimums, and it takes just 10 minutes to sign up. Head on over to RelayFi.com biggerpockets for stress-free banking. You can join me because I'm heading on over there right now. I'm heading on over to R-E-L-A-Y-F-I.com slash biggerpockets. Relay is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by ThreadBank, member FDIC. The Relay Visa debit card is issued by ThreadBank pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. and may be used everywhere Visa debit cards are accepted. What do you think, Ashley? Should we get into the thing and uh, start our conversation? Yes, let's do it. Miss Ashley Care, so nice to have you with me today. Yes, thanks so much, David. Uh, it's very exciting going from being a guest on the podcast to co-hosting with you today. Yeah, so which number was the first episode where you were interviewed on Bigger Pockets? It was uh, number 348. And uh, we talked about just my investing journey and how to get started as a new investor. So this is really cool because I think everyone listening should go back and listen to 348 and hear about how Ashley got started. And now we have some pretty cool news to share. Some congratulations are in order. You recently hit a net worth of $1 million. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hit that um, almost a year and a half ago now, maybe almost two years actually Uh, So I thought today we could kind of go into how someone else can attain that and reach that. Um, My husband and I never uh, combined made over $100,000 with my W-2 and his farm income. We uh, were able to reach that net worth with real estate. So I'm a little late to the party, apparently. This has gone on for a while. But I do think that it's cool that people can hear from when someone started out to where you are right now and sort of see the evolution that you've taken because a lot of people look for that path that they want to follow. I think most of us take inspiration from a certain person we heard on the podcast or on YouTube and we say, hey, I could do what they did or that person resonates with me. So I know you have a very big appeal. There's a lot of people that you resonate with. I think this should be really 
fun. And then if, for those of you who don't know, Ashley is also the host of the Real Estate Rookie podcast along with Tony. Do you want to share a little bit about what your show is like and what people can expect if they hear that? Well, it is the best real estate podcast out there. I would say the number one. So if you guys haven't listened to it, go check it out. But we primarily focus on rookie investors. So if you want to get started or you're just beginning, we really break down the fundamentals and we bring rookie investors on who have done less than 10 deals. So it's really fresh in their minds as to how they got started. And then they share that with you. And then we do have, uh, you know, experts on too to, to share with rookies. Uh, we recently had on uh, an asset management and planning attorney, and that has been like an awesome episode. So if you guys want to go check those ones out, but um, just learning how to have that asset protection now as a beginner and a rookie. So we do kind of special episodes like that too. Where do people get the most value out of listening to your show? Like who's the ideal person that should be listening to that? So it would be somebody who's just getting started in real estate. They don't know anything about it yet. Start from episode one and just listen to all the episodes. Also somebody who's maybe has one or two to five deals and they don't know what that next step is. They don't know if they should pivot. They should stay on the same track. Um, usually we say like under 10 deals, you're kind mm -hmm. of still considered a rookie or within your first year to two of investing. Uh, but there's definitely stuff to learn, even if you're an advanced <laughs> uh, investor too. You know, I think when I look at my own investing career, there was many different times where I would pivot or start a new phase and I became a rookie all over again. Yeah. So it could be one market. Now you go to a new market, you're starting all over. You're in single family, you get into small multifamily or multifamily. You want to start flipping houses. There's all these cool things that we're all interested in, but you're always a rookie when you start the new thing. So that mindset is very important to get and just maintaining that humility that oh, you just you never know everything and you're always making mistakes and you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're doing that, but continue to take progress. So I like your guys' show. I think you do a good job. And you've actually had Thank me you. on there as a guest. That was a lot of fun. I hope we can do that again. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put my application in and I'll keep bugging you and I'll see yeah. if I can get my, my manager. Actually, can... You know, it's actually up to my producer. I really don't have a say. So <laughs> Those producers are really the ones running the show, yeah. aren't they? Uh, one more thing, though, I wanted to add about people listening to the show is, and the same with this show, too, is even if you're looking for motivation and inspiration, not even advice or anything that you just need. R Real estate is a roller coaster. So sometimes hearing these rookies that are starting from zero and then get their first, their second deal can really jumpstart you and motivate you. And I think that's one of the best parts of me getting to be a co-host of the rookie show is that I get to experience that firsthand almost every single week. Uh, and it definitely keeps me on track and keeps me moving too. That's awesome. Okay. Tell me a little bit about where your portfolio is at this stage in your investing career. So I have uh, 33 uh, long-term rentals, buy and hold. I have one uh, Airbnb arbitrage. Uh, it's an apartment that I actually rent and then Airbnb uh, it out. And then I have uh, two commercial units and then I have a mobile home park under contract. That's a lot. How much of that has happened in the last couple of years? So I think I probably added maybe 15 units. Maybe I also did like my first accidental flip, got the mobile home park, learned about 
phase one and phase two environmental studies. Uh, <laughs> I had a self-storage facility under contract that just recently fell out of contract because of the environmental issues. And um, then running a liquor store, starting that out. <laughs> That's cool. So now you've got the like the business component to real estate to add that in there too. So now, Ashley, are these all in one geographical area or are they sort of scattered around? Yeah, they're actually all within 45 minutes of my house. So, <laughs> And I, I didn't even intend for it to be that way, but uh, it just happens that that's where the deals have been for me. And I, I have done, I've looked outside of New York, um, into Texas, uh, California and different places. And then as I'm maybe about to purchase something out there, something comes up close to home and it's just easier for me because I know the market so well and it's easy for me to make cash offers and to move on it. And I have my team there. So really it's just, it's been a good opportunity so far. So I'm just sticking with it. What about you? Have you uh, done any new markets or anything different? You know, I spent the last three, four years not buying a whole lot of property because I was building up the businesses that I'm running. So that the David Green team, real estate team, uh, the the mortgage company, I just started the one brokerage. So I was sort of like learning how to be a businessman. And now I'm actually making some pretty big moves and I don't get a chance to talk about it very much because we're usually interviewing the guests. And so I appreciate you asking that. Um, so far this year, I've bought two short-term rentals in Maui. Those are both doing way better than I was expecting. And I got really lucky. I bought those during the pandemic when nobody else was buying. And just in the time they were in escrow, they each appreciated over six figures. It was, it was wow. pretty incredible how fast that turned around. Did you have to build a business to run those short-term rentals? Or did you kind of already roll it into the management of your long-term rentals? That's funny that you ask. It was a very rough start getting going because I was trying to use people that are on my other businesses to run those and they just didn't do very well. So like most things that happen, it's like one key hire or the right person, whether it's a contractor or property manager. For me, it was a hire named Karen who stepped in and just took over. She's She got everything going and we got them up on Airbnb pretty quickly. And you know, when you get the right person in there, it's like, this is not hard. When you get the mm -hmm. wrong person in there, everything is hard. So there was a little bit of a struggle going on with that. And I just wasn't paying a lot of attention to them because I was looking at other things. So now like that, that systemized, I can take that. Not, there's not very much to it. I thought there'd be a lot more to short-term rentals than there are. And I can buy in other areas. So I am selling 25 or 26 properties in Florida. And I'm going to 1031 that money into more properties and more debt. So... I basically am looking at what's going on with the Fed and kind of like the market in general. I don't think a crash is coming. I think the opposite. I think we're going to see an even bigger increase in prices. I think that with the money that's being put into circulation, with the squeeze on uh, like hedge funds and uh, institutional investors that they need a return, that they're moving into certain markets and just buying a ton of property, there's a shortage in inventory. So what I'm looking to do is sell a house, say, for $200,000, take maybe $100,000 of that gain, and then put that down on a $500,000 property. That's a very general understanding, but I basically mm -hmm. want to take on more debt and owe more money and pay it back with cheaper dollars as inflation comes and move into better areas, just markets where I think we're going to see more appreciation. I can get a higher quality tenant and more of the short-term rentals and just have a backup plan that if something happens and I can't rent this as a short-term rental, that there's a corporate housing backfall, or I could rent it out as a long-term rental and I could make it make sense. So I'm kind of gearing up if people have deals out there that they think would work for that, please send them my way because I'm going to be going on a buying spree here pretty soon. 
Do you have any markets in mind that you're looking at where you do want to buy in? Yes, I'm looking at Tennessee, Florida, Texas. Those are really big areas in Arizona. So basically, just so you guys understand my strategy, I want to go buy places I think Californians are going to move to. Because every time Californians move somewhere, we drive the prices up way high. And it forces appreciation everywhere. So I'm looking in the Tampa, Orlando area, some of the vacation areas in Florida. So like the Space Coast, that little area. Um, the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, Avery Carl, we've had her on the show a few times. I'm working with her team and looking for some properties as well as some other areas like kind of around Nashville and then uh, the Scottsdale, Mesa, Gilbert area in Arizona and then in Texas, like sort of the, the Dallas area. And then I'm sure more stuff is going to pop up as I go. Yeah, I uh, we just had uh, Avery Carl on uh, the other uh, rookie show, too, and she has her new short term rental book. Uh, so if anyone does want to learn more about uh, doing short term rentals, uh, you can check that out at the Bigger Pockets bookstore, too. David, what else? Uh, is there anything else you have going on besides working on that 1031 exchange? Um, I bought a commercial property, my first triple net in Minnesota. Mm. And uh, that one's pretty solid. I bought it outside of Minneapolis. My thoughts were there's a lot of sort of like political unrest right now in Minneapolis. And certain people are moving in, certain people are moving out. But a lot of the businesses that have been going through like the riots that are going on there have the people don't feel comfortable working in that area. So they're sort of moving into the suburbs. And I bought a big commercial property where people would go put their business. And so that's been filling up with tenants. And that was, that was the biggest deal I ever bought. I've talked about it briefly. I don't know if I ever have on the podcast, but it was a $16 million property. And I've, I've, I've sold people before I'm back to being a rookie buying that deal, right? You get that same, like, this is triple net. Can it really just be that simple? What do you have to make sure you get right with these deals? I mentioned before that the mortgage is $80,000 on that. So you can't get that thought out of your head. You're just like $80,000. It's like a butt pucker number that you just constantly get nervous by. Even me, who's been investing for a long time. So I had to go through all those same rookie emotions and reminding myself that the numbers make sense and needing a lot of reassurance that I was making the right decision. So that was a that was definitely a unique experience that I went through this year. Yeah, that's definitely a mindset shift of going from like larger scale properties that cost more. I had that kind of recent too. I mean, the most expensive property I bought was a six unit for $150,000. And then all of a sudden this summer, I had two properties for over $750,000 under contract and the self-storage one fell out, but I'm moving forward with the mobile home park. But that was like just a huge thing for me. I had never even come close to that amount. And really it came down to, like you said, do the numbers work, but also the ratio of what you're paying compared to what the rental income to what that mortgage payment actually is. So like you said, the mortgage payment is 80,000. Well, maybe your rental income on that is 160,000. So, you know, it's, it's looking at that ratio too, of what are the chances that that whole unit is uh, vacant and you're not going to have any rental income at all to And that was the key. Yeah. What are the odds that every one Mm -hmm. of these is going to go vacant? And really what helped me get over it just emotionally was knowing that the bank was providing 80% of the money. They were taking a bigger risk than me and they felt good about that deal. And I think we forget that sometimes when you're getting into commercial property that your bank is your partner in this case, because they were the lender. They had smarter people that had done this a lot longer than I have done that looking at that deal and saying it looked good and it sort of verified or validated. Okay. Right. Like my gut told me the right thing. Now I just need to get over the fear. And then I forgot to mention, I have a property getting ready to close in a couple of days here in the Bay area of California. 
And you reminded me of it because I'm buying it for a little under 1.9 million. And that would normally just be a, oh my God, how could you spend that much money on one house moment, right? But because our clients are constantly buying houses in that price range and I'm seeing it all the time, that number did not scare me when it was in the Bay Area in a market I'm used to, right? There's no objective reason why 1.9 would be good or bad. It's just an emotional hit that you get when you see, like you, like you said, I've never bought a house over 150,000. 1.9 would feel like this real big scary thing, but it didn't feel that way for me just because I'm used to it. I see people paying those prices and I see them going up in value and really there's less risk in this deal. This is actually a deal as crazy as this sounds that I'm buying as like a safe play. There's so much rental demand in that area. I'm sort of preparing for that property when I first buy it to just break even. I don't think it's going to cash flow very much. It's got two four-car garages that are on the property that could be converted, and then it will cash flow. But I know there's going to be so much demand in that area because so many people want to live there that I'll never have to worry about a vacancy. So something that I've, I've learned as I've gone in my career is that bigger prices feel scary but in many situations, they're actually more stable. Buying that $50,000 house that feels safe in a terrible area that leads you to massive vacancy and big turnover and stuff that becomes really expensive. There's this like catch 22, or maybe not, that's not the right word, but there's this irony to what the price feeling being smaller, feeling safer actually works the other way. And oftentimes the more expensive properties, you end up with more solid tenants that have better financial backgrounds and they're less risky. I have a great example of that. I uh, bought a portfolio from an investor and there, if I wanted the golden goose properties, he called it, I had to take this little mm. duplex and buy it for $17,500. I mean, it was tilted. You could tell that it was crooked. There's so many structural issues. Well, it had a tenant in the downstairs that, you know, hoarder, but she paid every single month on rent. She didn't want anybody to come in and touch the unit, nothing done to it. She was content. So I kept it for almost two years. And then in the upstairs, tons of turnover, tons of damage, and just a lot of upkeep and repairs. And it was a cash cow. I mean, it cash flowed, I think, almost $600 a month. And it was only cost me $17,000 to get into it. But it was just a headache, a headache property. And so I ended up selling it and it sold for 60,000 in three days with four competitive cash offers. And it's just like, now is the time to get rid of those headache properties. If you do have them. (laughs) Yeah, that's, I think that's really smart when the market is, is hot and there's demand for properties. Mm -hmm. That's where you unload the stuff. That's not as good. And that's one of the reasons I'm selling those Florida properties. I have a couple dogs in there. The majority of them pretty solid. But this is the easiest time ever to sell a dog. When the market is down, it's very difficult to unload those. You'd almost have to pay people to take them off your hands. And so every market has a play to be made. Just like, you know, in sports, there's always, depending what the defense gives you, there's a good play that you could run against that. So right now, I'm looking to buy in areas where I think we'll see appreciation. I'm looking to get rid of the stuff that isn't appreciating as much. I'm looking to take on more debt. And I'm looking to be a little bit more aggressive with what I'm doing. And then the other thing that's kind of new is I started the one brokerage and we're now doing a lot of loans for investors that can't get traditional financing. So we also do traditional stuff, but I would say where I put more of my focus was if like, Ashley, if you wanted to buy a property and you have too many to get a conventional loan or your debt to income ratio won't support it because you have too many properties and you can't show the income 
that's the case a lot of the time when you get into this. We have loans that the lender will look at the income the property is going to generate and use that instead of the income of the borrower. So I've been putting a lot of time into kind of getting that word out there, making connections with people that are buying properties like we are, uh, funding their stuff so that more people can buy properties. Because I, I, mean, I just have this gut feeling that we're going to see such a run up in prices that if you're not wealthy, you won't be able to buy real estate at all. And that's heartbreaking because real estate has always been the one way that like the little guy or little girl, little gal can make their way to the top. You can become a millionaire through real estate investing where you couldn't do it in the corporate world nearly as easy. So that's probably a really good transition for us to get into just exactly what your five keys are to becoming a millionaire while working at W2 where you make under six figures. Yeah. So I I started as a property manager um, working for another investor and just kind of learning off him and seeing what he was doing. And that's what kind of got me my start. And I started off, first of all, paying off all my debt. So we paid mm. off all our farm equipment, all my student loans, everything like that. I would just dump my W2, my little bit of cash flow to all of those payments. So just the first like just setting those foundations, those fundamentals in your own bit, in your own money, like managing your own finances before you jump into real estate can be mm. a great start too, or doing that as you're, you're investing in real estate. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about for this, for the fundamentals is being a woman in real estate investing. And you hear a lot of times about, you know, g- the glass ceiling and how, um, you know, there's so many men uh, that are investors and not a lot of women and it's a disadvantage, but I really see it as an opportunity. And I'm sure that there's people that have encountered uh, situations or scenarios where it has felt like it hurt them being a woman and not a man as a real estate investor. But for me personally, I try to flip it and I try to use it as an opportunity. So the first thing I look at as being the co-host of the Real Estate Rookie podcast, if I was a man, I probably would not be the host of the podcast because I would be competing with tens of thousands of other men to be on there. But since, you know, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure they were probably looking for a woman and a male to uh, Mm -hmm. co-host together. So there was a lot less women that applied for that position because there's a lot less women that are in real estate investing. So then I look at the networking side of things too, that I think that there's this little like bit of interest because I am a woman real estate investor where people might be more interested in talking to me because I have, I am a woman and I started investing in real estate. So I've kind of built a really awesome network of people. Um, I got to go to Brandon and Tarl's uh, Maui Mastermind before. And I feel like if I was a male, I wasn't doing anything exciting or different than anyone else. Um, so yeah, I think that if you are a woman and you are an investor, you're starting out, look at look at it as an opportunity that you are one of very little people that are doing this industry. And that is awesome. That's cool. That's a thing to be super proud of. And I had um, seen uh, Cody Sanchez had uh, sent, they had put out this article about how some women kind of play a victim card, have the victim mentality. And I completely related with that. I think that as a woman, you should should take it as an opportunity and an advantage uh, being in an industry where you have so much potential because you are and in the corporate world, it may be different because you have Mm -hmm. bosses, you have restrictions, but in real estate, 
you don't have those limitations at all. It's such a beautiful perspective that you're taking with that. Cause like what you're, what I hear you saying is you're a novelty in a sense. There's, there's something that will catch people's attention and make them want to know more about what's going on. And it, I've heard a lot of women say, well, it's hard to be taken serious as a woman when you're talking to other investors. And I do believe that that is how they are experiencing the interaction. So some woman who's new to real estate investing goes to a conference. They try to go talk to like the big dog of the thing Mm -hmm. and they sort of get dismissed. And they, if I was a guy, they'd take me more serious. But it also could be a lot of men feeling that way because they've never bought a house and they're being dismissed just the same because they're a rookie. Right. And so if you're looking to see it as this person doesn't take me serious because of fill in the blank, that will become your truth. And then you will behave as if I don't belong here. I shouldn't do this. This isn't going to work. Versus if you look at it like, well, every other new person here is getting treated the same way. I'm not any different. You might have even got that person's attention because you stood out from all the other guys that were there that all look exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. You see a room full of a bunch of white dudes in nice suits wearing a shirt like I'm wearing right now, and you're just one out of a million versus there's something different about you. You can get more attention. So I love that you're taking that perspective. Is there any advice you can share on how to use that uniqueness about you know, being a woman in real estate, but really this works no matter where you are. If you're not the norm, if you look a little bit different or appear a little bit different, how you can use that to make better connections or work to your advantage. Yeah. One thing you just said there was if you are a woman and you're at a conference or something and you go up and you talk to the the big dog, the big shot, and if they do make you feel that way, that they're not taking you serious, then you're talking to the wrong person Mm. (laughs) because there are a ton of big shot, you know, male investors out there who will give anyone the time of day, no matter what they look like. So if you really do think that that person is making you feel that way, there's definitely some mindset to it, but, um, you're probably talking to the wrong person then. And that's like another thing. If you are working with contractors and you feel like they're not taking you serious, I think that's a huge advantage right there being a woman, because you're going to know upfront that that person's going to try to scam you or try to take advantage of you. And then, you know, not to hire them Mm. where say David goes, hires a contractor and they give him the quote and stuff and everything seems good. They might not try and, you know, do something shady until David's not around. (laughs) But if they're already trying to take advantage of you as a woman, well, then, you know, they're, you don't work with them. You have an advantage right there that you showed their cards right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I think just using things like that um, are an advantage. One thing I have done before is if I am like having a discussion with somebody and I feel like I'm being pressured to make a decision, I will use the excuse, well, let me talk to my business partner. He, He wants to be involved or, you know, let me talk to my husband or something. And that's like, it's amazing how acceptable that excuse is to delay giving a decision because it's oftentimes thought that I'm not the decision maker anyways. So I think that's an opportunity where if a guy was to say, well, let me talk to my wife, it will almost be like laughed at like, Oh, you have to go ask your wife. You don't know. You don't know what you're doing here. You need your wife to tell you. That's a great point. I love that. You know, one thing I've noticed when you're selling houses, there's typically more female realtors than men. And Mm -hmm. at least in the world I'm in, they usually do better. And as you were talking, I started, it sort of dawned on me that part of that is guys are less likely to share our vulnerability. We don't want to tell our buddies, I'm going bankrupt. I can't make my payment. I'm screwing up or something happened, right? 
Whereas in general, not everyone's the same, but I think in general, women are more likely to talk about what they're feeling and share what they're going through with their friends. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a woman investor and you have that dynamic in your, in your sphere of influence, people are way more likely to say so-and-so is going through a divorce, right? Or so-and-so's husband just lost her job or she just lost her job and they don't know what they're going to do with the house. They're trying to keep their kids in the same school. They'll share this information, mm -hmm. which is smart. Like guys should do this more. We don't. And it gives the the woman who's in that position sort of the inside track. They know about that deal before everyone else do. And I think that's why realtors that are that are women and not just any woman, right? But like there's a dynamic, like a personality that they have and they give you that feeling like you do to Ashley where I feel like I can trust you. Right there. There's definitely like a warmness that totally gives you an advantage because you're going to hear it. That's probably one of the reasons that you get so many deals near where you live, because everyone that knows you likes you. And they're more likely to say, hey, did you know that so and so's farm is going to be going up on the auction block or something? Yeah. And you kind of get there first. Would you agree that that's sort of like one of the reasons you think you get deals close to home? Yeah. And really word of mouth referrals has been like the best lead, lead source for me is generating deals. And my mobile home park that I have under contract. That was actually a friend from high school. We've stayed in touch. He has a business and he heard that somebody wanted to sell their mobile home park. And he called me. He was like, Hey, would you be interested? You know? And, uh, just like that, he thought of me first was, um, was awesome. And I didn't even have to, you know, compete with anyone. It was never listed. There was no other buyers. It was just, I got the first chance at that. So yeah, that was, um, uh, pretty cool. Yeah. And in my experience, sellers don't see blue or pink they see green. Mm -hmm. So if you're bringing the best deal to them and you have the best solution, then they, they're probably going yeah. to go with you. And one more thing too, if there is, if you are a woman and you, and there are men out there that maybe do think that like you can't do as great because you are a woman or whatever that belief is that you have, then use that as an advantage and ask them for help. Let them, you know, use their big ego oh, to help so poor little you to become so into this, you know, great investor and make them feel good that they're helping somebody that, you know, has no idea what they're doing. Take but advantage of that as an opportunity to. You're giving some gold nuggets here because as I'm thinking, not only am I a man, but I'm expected to be the real estate expert in everything. So yeah. I often end up in that rookie situation like we're talking about. And I don't want to admit, I don't know how this thing works. I'm hoping you will teach me. Or there's some embarrassment if I have to say to the person who looks up to me, hey, can you tell me how this market works or what type of properties would make sense here? All this stuff I write in a book and I tell someone else to go do when I got to go do it, it's kind of embarrassing. So sometimes I don't. But like you said, you can just play that. Oh, I don't know how this whole, can you tell me what I should look for in this house? <laughs> that is really good. So, And one thing too is there's so many women community landlord groups and investing groups too out there where, I mean, there are some groups that are just for men, but there are so many free groups that are just for women investors that you can take advantage of too. Um, if you want to, to network more with other women. Yeah. Bigger pockets actually has a podcast specifically geared towards mm -hmm. women, the invest her, not investor podcast. So that's definitely like when you listen to those two talk there, they don't sound like like they don't know what they're doing. It right. doesn't bother them that they're women. Those are confident, knowledgeable, yeah. mature. Like I would listen to advice from either of those two. So I, if you're a woman listening to this and you would like that perspective, you want more about what Ashley has, definitely check out the Investor Podcast. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. 
Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You, you got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light doc and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. All right. So seeing being a woman as an opportunity, it was the, one of the first keys to becoming a millionaire, making less than $100,000 a year. What would key number two be? It would be using creative financing. So when I started, I think we had like maybe... $8,000 in savings. And we ended up using about maybe 5,000 of that for the rehab on the first property, but I found a partner and the partner brought the cash. So using a partner uh, is definitely a way to get creative with financing if they are going to fund the deal. Then I've also structured uh, seller financing deals. And that has been beneficial because sometimes you don't even have to bring any money to the closing table. <laughs> I also love to, when I get a property, before I even make an offer, I like to send out emails to four or five different lenders that I work with and tell them about the property, 
what I want to do with it and ask them, what do they have to offer me? So a lot of times these small local community banks, they can come up with different ways to finance deals and what they can give you. So I always ask. I don't say I want this type of loan. Mm. I try and find out what they can offer me and then I wait and see what they get back. And then I run my numbers based off of whatever financing route I want to go with. And sometimes there will be nothing unique. But this one time I had a property that um, I was actually signing for a line of credit and I was telling the lender about this property. He's like, well, how are you going to buy it? I said, well, maybe with this line of credit. And he said, actually, if you wanted, I can give you a 90-day unsecured loan to purchase the property. And then after you close, we'll just refinance it into long-term financing with that bank. And like, I never would have known that was even an option to do, but he just threw that out. So uh, there's definitely ways to to get creative. David, what about you? Do you do a lot of creative financing? I haven't yet, but that's mm-hmm. one of the things that is sort of in the next phase is I'm looking because really, if you want to do creative financing, you usually have to have like an off market opportunity. If it's on the MLS that mm-hmm. the sellers who go to an agent just aren't as comfortable with that as an option or the house has to sit there for long enough that they'd be open to considering it. So what I'm looking for is more of the bigger pockets community to be bringing me those opportunities and then putting together the seller financing because that is something I want for sort of like the rest of my career to get deeper into. What I do do that you mentioned that I don't want to let us pass over without highlighting it because it's brilliant is just that concept that instead of putting pressure on yourself to go to the bank or go to your agent or go to your contractor and say, here is what I want to ask them, what would you do? How would you solve this problem? That is one of the things that I've learned in business that has been so monumentally important and people pass this up all the time. There's this belief that a lot of the bigger pockets community has is I have to learn every single thing about this and then I can go do it. And I don't even do that. I was just talking to one of my brand new employee employees. His name's David Gold. It's funny because I'm David Green, right? <laughs> Put us together. We're the Oakland A's green and gold. And he, we're looking to buy properties and he's going to be helping me to sift through the inventory. And he said, hey, the agent wants criteria. This is the criteria I gave him. And here's what he gave me back. Which one do you want to buy? I was like, David, how can I possibly decide which house I want to buy based on this? He goes, well, I just thought you were David Green. So like you could just, you would just know. I was like, look, you're doing what every person does in the beginning. And it's the same mistake that they all make is they, the agent is just going to tell you how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how many square footage. Okay. That's what I want. I'll go find it. I want you before you give the agent any criteria to get information from them. You should be asking them, which which part of this city do we want to buy in? Would this strategy work? What are other people doing that are making money? What's something that no one's doing that they should be doing, right? You should be using these people that we typically are just only seeing as a resource to get from A to B as a way to learn and grow and improve our own knowledge and education. So that's what you did with this bank is you said, well, I want to buy this property and get a loan. And he came up with the idea of get a line of credit, pay cash. You can get a smoother transaction. Then we can switch it over. You didn't have to know that. And I just, I, I wonder sometimes like at the end of our lives, if, if when we're standing in front of God, we're going to look back and say, oh, I could have just asked this question instead of I spent three years trying to learn it all on my own and then go do it. So um, if you have any other examples of that, I would love to hear them. If not, we can move on to the the third example. Yeah, well, even just asking questions. So I like to ask sellers to uh, two questions if they're interested in doing seller financing, and also if they have any other properties for sale. And I've gotten mm. a couple of deals because the investors do have other properties that maybe. 
they're going to sell, you know, a couple months from now after this one sells, but Hey, they'll give me a package deal. Or, um, this one guy, when I was actually sitting down with him, going over the contract for one property, he actually pulled a, a survey out of his file cabinet. and was like, you know, I do have this parcel of land too. And I didn't even get the chance to ask. He just already was like, do you want to buy this too? And Mm -hmm. I got a great deal on that just because I was taking both off. Um, so that's the two questions of seller financing and uh, if they have any other properties for so sale that good. I like to ask. Yeah. So smart. And there's no reason not to ask that question. Yeah. In fact, this is one of the ways that I know if this is a person I want to work with is if I can say to them, what, well, what else could you do or how could you solve mm-hmm. this? And they come up with the answer. That's how I picked my partner for the one brokerage. Christian is I would say, hey, here's the problem. I have too many of these properties. Money is coming in through these corporations, but it's not claimed in my name, but I want to buy the property in this way. And I'm, it's tricky. And he would say, well, we could do this. We could we could structure it this way. And when you get a person who is taking the initiative and the responsibility to solve your problem for you, that's where you have a really good person. And that's why I like him because now he's doing that for all of our clients who run into those same situations. So I can't highlight this enough. If you're talking to people, do what Ashley said. Ask them, do you have other properties to sell? Do you have other problems that I could solve? That's really good. Yeah, I do have uh, two examples I can give quick about uh, creative financing. So uh, for one property, the person was going to be moving out and building their own home. So they needed a large down payment. Uh, But also they were going to do seller financing for the rest. But they wanted uh, a larger amount um, of money coming in than what I wanted to do for the seller financing. So what we did to structure it was we decreased the down payment and then we did seller financing over um, 15 years at three and a half percent. And then what we did in year three and year four was they'll get a lump sum payment of twenty five thousand dollars at those two years. Um, just to kind of break it out. And that's a great thing with seller financing is there there's no rules that you can create it however it works for you guys. And I sat down with this couple three or four times and every single time we completely scratched out my letter of intent and reorganized it and made it so that it worked for both of us too. But just like asking the question. So him telling me how much he wanted monthly I was able to, he didn't care about the interest rate at all. And that's why I was able to get three and a half percent because all I did was tailor his mortgage payment to what he wanted and then kind of put a low interest rate with it. And then uh, another example is we're actually buying another farm and it was going uh, into foreclosure. So we are doing a subject two on that property where we're actually taking over the mortgage payments. Uh, for the seller, and we are going to quit claim deed the property into our name, and then you know we've uh, gotten the mortgage payments caught up. Mm. Uh, we there was back taxes on the property, so the seller did agree to pay the back taxes, and then we're just paying to get the mortgage caught up. So it'll be about thirty five thousand dollars out of pocket. But if we would have went to a bank and we would have gotten conventional financing, we would have had closing costs. We would have had to put 20% down and it would have been Mm. about $100,000 we would have had to come up with to purchase this property, just getting that conventional loan. So the subject to is hopefully going to work out great for us. So this was a farm that had fallen behind on their payments and Mm -hmm. they had fallen behind on paying their property taxes. Mm -hmm. They were headed to foreclosure. So it was a lose for them no matter what. 
you stepped in and you basically said, we will take over your payments instead of getting a new loan to buy the property. And we will pay the money that you owe the current lender so that they don't foreclose on the property. You pay your own back taxes. You can avoid foreclosure. We can avoid closing costs and having to get a new loan on the property. You probably got it at a better price as well because they were under some kind of duress. And their property had them as the the primary residents. So there you have a low interest rate. It's a low mortgage payment or amortized mm. over a long time. It's a, a USDA loan. So great terms, better than we would get buying it as an investment property. And then we actually got a great purchase price because what we're actually buying it for is basically what the balance was on the mortgage. We're not paying them any more money than yep. um, what was owed on that. So uh, it's a great deal. But also we tried to go the short sale route too, but the bank would not work with us on that. And part of if we did that, they would not allow the current owner to stay in the property um, with it being a short sale. So this way with doing the subject too, we're actually renting back, renting the property to the the seller and he's going to continue to live there and pay us rent. And then there's two other uh, houses on the property too. That's so it really win-win. is a win-win. He gets to stay yep. in the property and he uh, doesn't have to worry about, you know, having it go up to tax auction or being foreclosed on. So that takes us to key number three. We've sort of hinted, you formed a form of a partnership with the seller in that case to make it work Mm -hmm. for both people. What is your third key? So this one is leveraging partnerships. So I like, I like working with people on a project. So making someone your partner, they're definitely a lot more interested and motivated when they have ownership in that that property as to working with you on it. So my first partnership, uh, he was uh, very passive. It was just money. And so basically whenever I have a project, I know I can do it myself. I don't need help. I go to him and he's the money guy and I just take care of everything. And, but that's a great way to leverage someone. If they are busy, they don't have time to invest, uh, but they want to invest be that person's opportunity, take the money from them, invest it for them and work out that partnership. My second partner, he was uh, already um, had a couple properties on his own, and we were both kind of stuck as to where to go next. So we pooled our money together and our resources together. So I took over the property management, the leasing, and he handled the maintenance and any repairs, remodels on the couple properties we bought. But really, my biggest use of a partner was when I bought my mixed-use building. So this was two commercial units and two residential units. And it basically, three of the units needed to be completely gutted and rehabbed. And at this point, I had never done a full-blown uh, rehab. So I wanted to put a wine and liquor store in this building. And what I did was I took on a partner who could do a rehab And our agreement was that he would do the rehab. I would help. I would learn from him. And he got 40% equity of the building and then also uh, 40% equity of the liquor store. And another advantage of using him as a partner is that he already owned um, a bunch of uh, restaurant franchises and he had a supervisor who managed all of those who could Mm -hmm. help us implement running a business and managing a business and what systems to put in place. And even just things like doing payroll and sales tax, things like that. So those were like the two things, using him to help with rehab and then with having his supervisor help us actually get the store running. 
I think that's something that is often overlooked when people are considering partnerships is I always hear it framed that, well, this person does the money and this person finds the deal. And you're leaving out all the work of managing that asset. So if it's a flip, well, who's going to find the contractor? Who's going to manage that person? Or if it's a liquor store, there's more moving pieces than just buying a property and renting it out. You've got people that have to track the inventory, people that have to manage the crew, who's going to work and when, and the payroll and the taxes and making sure that the books are kept well, and who's going to make sure that it's actually running profitably, who makes sure no one's stealing money out of the till. That off the bat would stop me from buying a business like a liquor store because I know the work I'd have to then go put in because I'm the rookie in that space now, right? Yeah. And I got to learn how to do it. But if I'm doing it with a person who already has the infrastructure that can make that work, that's a massive advantage. And so it's more than just who brings the money, right? There's mm-hmm. these elements that you're seeing angles that other people are missing. Yeah. So I the deal was I purchased the property. I used my cash for that. And I did the startup cost for the liquor store, such as the liquor license. Um, We've actually paid a broker who actually did the whole application for us for the liquor license and made it super easy. Uh, Having this partner, though, like the one thing that we both wanted was we didn't want to get that phone call. Oh, so-and-so is not coming into work. We need you to go in and run the store today. Like we did not want to be involved with the store at all. We didn't even want to know if somebody didn't want to show up for work. We wanted that taken care of by a manager. And that's how we, we built it. And it, we really relied on that supervisor from the, the restaurant franchises she, I mean, set up our POS system. She did our first inventory order. She hired our full-time manager for the store. And then um, our manager pretty much runs all the day-to-day operations. And we have some part-time employees. And then the supervisor just kind of oversees her. And then we have um, a bookkeeper that does uh, payroll and sales tax for uh, the liquor store. But really, I have a, a dashboard that I log into. I can look at sales, things like that but it's pretty um, hands-off for me. And that's really what we wanted. So it was a a great partnership being able to take advantage of using my partner's uh, supervisor because it would not have been cost-effective to hire somebody Mm -hmm. um, in that role to just run the liquor store. That's exactly right. Like the, the volume of the scale that you have, that you get into where it would maybe break even or lose money to hire a person just to do that. You'd have to have several of these things before Mm -hmm. it would make sense. So I love your point about leveraging partnerships because it's deeper than just finding the money or finding the deal. There's the operational component that you have to consider. And I think that that ties in really nicely with the next key that we're going to get into, because in order to have this next key, you have to be able to leverage partnerships and you have everything going on. So that's my little tease. Why don't you let everybody know what the fourth key is going to be? So the next one is a multiple income streams. So looking at a property and seeing how many different ways it can make you money. What are those revenue streams? And also I like the diversification uh, of a property, looking at it and seeing different revenue streams. And it it makes it feel more safe to me, but also presents other exit strategies because maybe you will have a a variety of buyers because you have those different revenue streams coming out of that property. Uh, So with the liquor store building, it has a two commercial downstairs and it has two residential upstairs, but in the, the one commercial unit, we put the liquor store in there. So there's business income, commercial income, and residential income. So there's those three revenue streams coming out of that property. So say for some reason, you know, 
everybody moves out of that town. There's no residential. Nobody wants to rent apartments anymore in that unit. Well, then I still have the businesses. I still Mm -hmm. have the liquor store. Another great thing too about purchasing the property that you're putting a business in is the kind of the tax advantages of that too. Just that we pay rent to the building. So that kind of offsets some of our business income and we're taxed as rental income on that property too. And rental income is taxed at softer than the business yeah. income would be. Yeah. So you've got depreciation that can shelter that money when it's going into the building. Because I know a lot of people hear that and they say, well, what is the difference? It's six, one, half a dozen, the other. You're going to pay three grand to the building or you're going to keep three grand in the business. It's all the same. But when you're taking money out of your business that doesn't have as many tax advantages and you're paying yourself rent, now that rent money is, is softened and, sh- and uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like shielded, I guess you could say by the um, tax code that helps landlords. So that's another really smart point that you're hiring. And I think that's one of the reasons why when we interviewed Robert Kiyosaki on episode 500, he said, the purpose of business is to buy and own real estate and take on debt. And he talked about how McDonald's is doing so well because of the real estate they own, not just the hamburgers that they're selling. So you have made a great case here for how you sort of work all these pieces together synergistically and make them work to your advantage. Yeah. And just looking at properties, when you look at it, think of different ways that you can generate revenue off it. Um, So there's the mobile home park, there's sheds scattered around the property. You can rent those out to the tenants for say $50 a month. There's 16 of them on this property. That's a nice little chunk of change. Putting in coin operated washer and dryer. If there's just like a vacant lot, uh, throw some gravel down and do boat and RV storage. That's huge in our area because everybody has to store their boat and RV in the winter months. Mm. Um, So just looking at properties and seeing different ways or, you know, maybe there's a a garage that even you can rent out um, additional. So when you're purchasing a property, try and find those unique ways that you can generate more income and a lot of times other buyers aren't going to be looking for that. They're just going to look at, oh, this property brings in you know, this much rental income and they're not thinking, well, I could charge an additional $100 a month for that garage yeah. to rent that out too. Yeah, this that's an amazing point. Again, this episode's full of these really good nuggets that I want to highlight. I see a lot of investors stuck in the mindset that worked in 2010, right? At that time, there was deals everywhere you would just look for the best of the really good deals and then try to low offer as low of a price as you could on that best deal. And there was so much opportunity that you could make that strategy work. The problem is it established a baseline in our minds of that's how buying real estate should work is I just go in there and I look for the one that's been on the market the longest. I give the lowest price. I walk into a bunch of equity and I just wait and it goes up in value today's market, we're in a much healthier economy. You have much more competition for these assets. There are bigger companies and more money chasing them. There's 10 or 15 years of price appreciation leading to 1031s of people who need to put that money into the same deal you're trying to buy. A lot of people don't realize they're like, what? That's only a 6% return. I would never buy a 6% return. Well, you might if you were shielding $500,000 of gains that you were going to have to pay taxes in. Now that makes sense. And that's your competition. So 
if you're going to thrive in this environment, which I think people need to more than ever, because like I said earlier, we're getting to a point that real estate might just not be attainable for some people. You have to see angles other people aren't seeing. And I that's what I hear you saying a lot, Ashley, is mm-hmm. you're actively looking for how could I make this better than it is rather than just relying on some algorithm that says, well, this is what they're saying you can make. This is what it would cost. That's your analysis and that's it. Yeah. And one thing that I've been looking at actively to making offers on is a campground. So there's so many different ways you can pull revenue off of a campground, like having a little store that sells some more stuff, uh, having golf carts for rent, and then just even having seasonal or daily rentals, uh, having, you know, kids crafts, having a pool, different things like that, that you can pull, uh, having glamping sites set mm. up. So going into these kind of specialty properties has been something that has interested me too, or turning properties into specialty properties because there's that opportunity there to pull those different revenue streams. You know, before we get into the fifth key, I want to just ask you selfishly, With all these different types of assets that you're buying, I know you're sort of, I don't want to say spread thin, but they're not all concentrated into one place, right? You've got the the liquor store, a campground, a mobile home park, single families, the short term, the arbitrage. If you don't have a big portfolio, you might not understand how much more complicated that it's kind of like if you're, this is the best analogy I could think. If you're a waiter or a waitress working in a restaurant, if my three or four tables are all next to each other, it's way easier than if I got to run to the back of the restaurant for this table and all the way to the front for this one. And then outside on the patio, it becomes way less efficient to move around. What are you doing to manage these assets? Do you have people that you've hired that sort of look at them or are you all self-managing right now? So with like my, uh, buy and hold rental portfolio. I outsourced to a property management company uh, in February, 2020. So I got that off my plate. It was like a huge relief, not self-managing anymore. So that freed up Mm -hmm. a lot of my time. Uh, And then I, for the Airbnb, the supervisor that runs the liquor store, she takes care of all that. I don't even touch that at all. I just, the little notification that money's being deposited from Airbnb. Uh, But as far as like, doing these deals, um, I suffer so bad from shiny object syndrome and chasing after <laughs> right now I'm sitting at a self-storage convention. I looking at self-storage now. <laughs> I I think for me is like with buying the single family duplexes, the smaller multifamily, it's so easy for me to do, which that that's a great thing. But I like to have something that challenges me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop buying you know, the small multifamily, I do that so well in my market, I'm going to keep doing that too. But I just have the systems in place where that's very easy. And I recently um, took on an acquisitions manager who's going to be starting within the next couple months to really focus on those. And that will free up even more time for me to go after these larger commercial properties. Uh, I actually had like this uh, realization (laughs) moment. I uh, went to Seattle and um, spent some time kind of job shadowing James Daynard, who had an episode on here. If you just mm-hmm. search Red Brahmin waiter, I think you'll find his episode. But he just talked about having the multiple stacks of properties. So just putting that small amount of cash into a small single family duplex, holding on to it for a couple of years for that appreciation. Maybe you're cash flowing very small or breaking even, and then 1031 exchanging into those bigger properties. He said people get so focused on, oh, I 
you know, I'm a big investor. I need to go and buy these huge commercial properties now and forgetting about where they started and what helped them build their wealth. Uh, So I I think that was like a big mindset shift for me is like continuing what I'm doing and not forgetting about what I'm good at and keeping that going. And then, you know, maybe seeing what's the next uh, best thing for me too. That's really good. And if you want to hear the James Daynard story, which was an excellent podcast, Mm -hmm. by the way, that was episode 338. What James does that I 100% agree with and I do as well. Uh, I notice a lot of people, let's say that most people's goal, I would say in this business is cash flow. That's what people are ultimately looking for. The problem as I see it is cash flow is incredibly difficult to build. Like these small multifamilies you're buying, multifamilies are meant for cash flow. So it's even easier than single family. But even then, you're talking about a couple hundred bucks a month and you got to get a lot of them before you can get that much cash flow. However, how much they appreciate when you buy a property under value and then you fix it up to make it worth even more. I guess what I'm getting at is it's easier to add equity than it is to build cash flow. You have more control over the process when you're building equity versus cash flow. You sort of just have to wait for rents to rise. There's not a lot you can do with small residential properties. What James did well was he focused on getting a great deal, buying it right, making it worth more, keeping it afloat with the cash flow. But then 1031-ing that equity into a bigger deal with more cash flow. So if he was to save the money he needed to buy the bigger deal, it would have taken forever versus you get the smaller properties that boost and amplify how quickly you can build equity and then you convert it into cash flow. That's really what my strategy sort of looks like is I buy like, you know, I've got, say, 40 or 50 single family homes that I use the Burr method on that are all building me equity. Now I start taking chunks of those and selling them off and converting that into higher cash flowing properties. And then you wait and see, did I get more appreciation? If so, I might sell those and go into something bigger versus I'm going to start with multifamily and I'm going to wait till I can save $700,000 of a down payment. Right. Right. And (laughs) 15 years later, when you finally have that money, the property's worth three times as much as if you bought it in the beginning. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of people get into real estate for wealth building. There are the people that are like, I want cash flow so I can quit my W-2 job ASAP. So yeah, maybe then you're really focused on the, you know, getting a large amount of cash flow, but there's a it's harder to find a property that's going to cash flow. It's easier to find a property that will break yep. even or just a little bit of cash flow and then you hold on to it for a year, two years, and then 1031 exchange it. So I think look at what your your goal is. Are, are you still going to be working your W-2s in the next couple of years? And maybe that is the right path for you to take is to focus more on appreciation than cash flow for these properties and kind of build wealth that way. I've talked to a couple investors now since that first conversation with James. And since they're already kind of set or have other revenue streams where they're not reliant on that rental income, it seems like a lot of investors have been doing that now, but focusing more on that appreciation Mm. to build that wealth. David, but what about if the, the market were to crash? Do you think a lot of investors are using appreciation right now and using that strategy because of what we've seen the last couple of years and how much appreciation and they've actually gained on their properties that it has been a huge opportunity. I think confidence is up because we've seen a run in prices. So people are more comfortable doing this. Cash flow feels like the safer route and appreciation feels like a riskier route. So yeah, I do think that that plays a role. I also think there's actually some wisdom to it that with the way the market is working, you will be more successful 
taking advantage of appreciation instead of just depending on cash flow. And I say that because of the way the Fed has handled the, the country's money is every time we hit what would be a recession, they just throw stimulus into this thing and throw more money. And then all of a sudden the price of everything's going up because we have massive inflation that no, it's like this carbon monoxide. No one's talking about it until it hits and then you're in big trouble, but you didn't see it coming. Right. Yeah. So I do think that's a component of it. I also think Cash flow itself is becoming so much harder to find because you're competing with so many people who want it. Hedge funds need it. Syndicators need it. Like if you understand the model of the big players, they are borrowing money from other people, investing it, and then selling the property to pay people back. And most of those people that are putting their money into these organizations want some form of continuing revenue. They want a 6% preferred return or an 8% preferred return. So that Asset that is being bought has to generate enough cash flow to pay the investors of the people who bought it. Like just the model works that way. So now they're like locusts that are just going over the field of the USA looking for cash flow and ascending on that thing and eating up as much of it as they can. And the little person who's listening to a podcast like this just feels like I they got it before I could get to it or there's not enough left. And so I think that's another reason why we're seeing more of that appreciation becoming the strategy of choice just because the competition for that cash flow is fierce. Yeah. And I, there's definitely ways to protect yourself if you do feel that it is a risk going for appreciation. What are your exit strategies? I mean, worst case scenario, you hold on to the property longer and you know you break even, but at least everything is paid. So are you in a great rental market where you don't see the you know having a problem with vacancy or can you turn it into an Airbnb and maybe cash flow mm-hmm. a little bit more if you need to or you know, is it a property that would sell, um, you know, maybe for a, a different model or something like that, but having those extra strategies in place can definitely help you feel more comfortable. Those are huge. I think, you know, that there's that phrase Warren Buffett said, or maybe someone else said it before him, but it was when the tide goes down, you see who's swimming naked. There's a lot of people that are buying properties that they maybe shouldn't be, or they're paying too much or whatever, because they're getting away with it. It's like musical chairs works when the music's on. Right. And then when the music stops, you see who's close to the chair. So I do think whenever that happens, who knows when it'll be because of the way we keep printing stimulus every time we hit a rough patch, that there's a lot of syndicators that bought properties on margins that were way too thin and did overpay or bought in areas that didn't make sense, but they they skated by. And then when we have a recession, if rents drop a little bit or or tenants have more opportunity to go to nicer places, they totally will. Right. And then those people who are on those areas they shouldn't have bought in because they thought the deal made sense on a spreadsheet will be exposed. And what you said is the recipe to avoid that is you have multiple exit strategies. That's everything that I look to buy. Okay. The goal is, let's say it's short term rental. Do I have a backup of corporate housing? Do I have another backup that I could make this thing into two or three units and I can rent it out as separate, like apartments almost in, in the home? Does it have a basement? Does it have an ADU? That's my third backup plan. So I, I don't just go, let's say, oh, this is the return. Let's buy it. It's got to be in the right area, the right city, the right neighborhood, attracting the right tenant base. All those things have to be in place. And then when I find it, I rush after it. But that's why I sleep well at night. Because I'm not gambling on this is my one way. And if something changes, I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. Well, should we move on to the the fifth fundamental? Yes. Number five, what is your fifth key? So it is owning a business. So taking the shift from, you know, just real estate investor to kind of a entrepreneur of owning a business and running one. Uh, so I think that this can definitely help. So my husband has owned a, a dairy farm 
uh, and that's kind of been his business that he's run forever and all he's ever known. Uh, so I was kind of, and my dad was an entrepreneur, ran his own business. So just watching both of them, I kind of had an idea of how a business was run. Both of them have um, very small businesses, not a lot of employees at all, but um, it has definitely, it's a huge change going from real estate investor where you can do that on your own. You can go, um, you know, acquire properties and you can do a lot of that just from, you know, sitting on your computer screen, but actually running a business where employees depend on you and you're, you know, you are their livelihood. Like they depend on you for your paycheck, but also learning how to, to manage, how to lead, um, being available for, you know, answering questions. These were all things I was uncomfortable with and I really had to learn to deal with because I, my whole goal eventually like down the road is to not be bothered. Uh, my, my cousin is a recruiter and she actually had somebody that she interviewed that said he, this guy's just looking for a remote job where he doesn't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? That actually sounds really nice. That does that job actually exist? But uh-huh. I, I, I think, uh, you know, me and Tony will keep talking on the podcast and having our guests. I love that. But as far as, um, you know, learning how to have people come with me for problems and dealing with that, I really had to, um, kind of change. Cause it wasn't like I was an employee of somebody where I could say, Oh, to the boss, like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Or can you take care of this? I am the boss. I have to find that solution. I have to make that decision. So just learning how to overcome those things that have made me uncomfortable and especially confrontation. I don't like confrontation mm-hmm. at all. And having to learn how to deal with that. But I think a big thing, if someone is looking to start a business and get into a business is know how you want your business to run. Like if you want to be like me and you don't want to be involved day to day, don't put yourself in the position where maybe you're just going to start out working the cash register at the liquor store because it's going to be a lot harder to get out of that position. So from day one, figure out who are the people that you need and get those people first before you even open the doors. And I think that was really beneficial. Yeah. And when you consider the revenue you can make owning a business as opposed to just working that W-2 job, Mm -hmm. it's incredible when you do it right, what you can make for yourself, right? That's why a lot of millionaires are entrepreneurs because they they were able to scale. That's a whole new show we we could get into like what it takes to be successful. I know to me, the biggest mistake that business owners make is they do what they know and what they're comfortable with, which is having a W-2 job. And they bring that mindset into their business. So they do exactly what you said. I go buy a 7-Eleven and I immediately make myself the manager and the, the clerk of the register because that's what I'm used to doing. And you don't think about marketing, expanding, tax strategies, bookkeeping, all the things that are going to help your business be profitable because you're moving, you're ringing up the Sprite or trying to figure out, should I put the the Slurpee machine on this side versus that side? And that's what every, and when you're working a W-2 job, that's all you have. And like you said earlier, conflict is rarely ever the employee's problem to deal with. Somebody comes in and they're ticked off and you escalate it to someone else, which is just a way of passing the buck, right? Mm -hmm. And we all get used to that. But when you're the business owner, there is no one to pass it to. You end up being forced to sort of eat that frog of conflict, which is why I think you found out when you started running a business, oh, I don't like this because it just keeps coming and there is no one else to give it to. Uh, What I love about what you're saying as far as 
this is the fifth key to becoming a millionaire while you're working is there are many businesses you can start as a side hustle. That's what I did. I was a cop and I started mm-hmm. selling houses. That was a form of having a business. Selling houses was easier than me for me than the average Joe because I already owned houses. I was already buying rental property. So I understood that asset class. Most people here are passionate about real estate. That's why they're listening to this podcast. There is some business that they can start that they can do in addition to their job or sometimes at their job. Not every job requires constant attention 100% Mm -hmm. of the time. So there may be people that own rental property and they have six properties. They manage it themselves and they love managing it. God bless those people that are out there. But they don't like analyzing it or something else. They don't like talking about it. You could start a property management business and just take the systems you have, apply it to other people, and boom, you've helped them. That's kind of literally what I've done in the last four years was I said, all right, I buy rental property. Let me start a real estate team that serves our clients the way that I want my agent serving me. So when I buy a house, this is what I do. All my agents are trained to do that for the clients. Well, even with your mortgage company. Same thing. Now too, yeah. Yep. (laughs) And that's a great point is to what are things that can align with your real estate business. Like you'll see some investors that have a, like a plumbing company yeah. even, or, you know, they do, or they do turnkey or things like that um, because it aligns with their business and it benefits them. And it's making them money by having a customer source too. It's a massive advantage you have over the other people in that space that mm-hmm. you already understand it and you've been doing it. So I know when I try to buy houses, financing is just the hardest part. It is so frustrating for someone in my position to get loans. And I don't like the time it takes to have to go to every single market I invest in and find some credit union that will let me borrow there. So instead, I just started a company and said, your job is to go find a nationwide lender that will let us borrow (laughs) under these terms. And lo and behold, they come back and all of a sudden I'm buying houses again because they found me financing. And because I sort of was the trailblazer to figure that out, all these other investors that are in the same position as me get to benefit from that because we can get really good loans like in the fours for people that don't qualify for conventional rates. And now that should grow to other things, right? Like a CPA business. That's something I want to start in the future because I'm learning all these strategies of saving money in real estate. I want to be able to help the bigger pockets community with that. And and you, actually, you're doing the same thing in many ways where you're Except like with this liquor. liquor. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> when you are stressed about your rental property, your rehab is not going well, makes you stop at the North Collins Wine and Liquor Store to that's pick so up funny. all your needs. <laughs> that's where you meet your sellers to negotiate your deals. Yeah. You sit down with a couple bottles of uh, Colt 45 and you get, them, you get them nice and soft before you start the, the numbers. Yeah. But one thing with owning a business too is the sale of it. Like you can, you have the potential to build a business for the liquor store. We started that from scratch. We didn't buy it, started it from scratch Mm. and potentially down the road, we would have the option to sell it too. So that's also can be a great opportunity is selling a business too. Absolutely. Especially when you've established it to run on its own. That's Mm -hmm. why you don't want to be the clerk that works in the store because it's very hard to sell it if it depends on you. When it's self-sustaining, there's especially like these companies that are going and chasing after real estate and throwing money in it, they would chase after businesses and throw money into that too because what they really need is a revenue stream. So if you can create a revenue stream right now, you can absolutely exit. This is a great time to do that because the economy is is going so well. So before we get out of here, Ashley, I do want to ask you, what is one thing that our uh, accumulative audience here can do to help you with your investing career? Well, if anybody knows of any campgrounds for sale, I am definitely interested in that. So you guys can send me your campground or your self-storage deals. But also, if you guys are rookie investors and 
you are motivational, you're inspirational, you uh, have less than 10 deals, and you want to help other people get started just like you did. And it's fresh in your memory because you're a rookie. Um, But I want you to be able to tell me how you did something, not just what you did. Um, if you think that describes you, uh, please apply to be on uh, the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast. You can send me a DM at Wealth from Rentals on Instagram, and I will send you a link uh, to the application. We're always looking for, um, you know, to have new guests on the show. We usually record once or twice a week, and it's like my favorite thing ever because I get to use it to my advantage. All my curiosity uh, comes out, and I get to ask, you know, everything I know, and it keeps me motivated. So. If you think you fit that profile, please uh, send me a message on Instagram. That's awesome. And I highly recommend everyone go listen to that podcast. As you can see, Ashley was just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb this entire time. And who wouldn't want more of that several times a week? Well, thank you so much, David. And thank you for uh, letting me co-host with you. (laughs) Yeah, I wish we could do this more often. I love hearing your perspective on things. I love talking to somebody who's still in the trenches looking at deals. As she's recording this, it looks like from her hotel room (laughs) at a conference right now where she is learning about self-storage. Like you said, you're just sort of like me immersed in all things real estate and sharing that knowledge. So we all get to benefit from the work that you're doing. Well, David, maybe one time uh, you can co-host with me on the the rookie uh, episode, we can do one together. But before we do that, just so everybody knows, uh, actually, the next episode, I am kicking David off of the show. And I am bringing my co host, Tony Robinson on and we are going to do a takeover. That is right. So Ashley has officially forced me out of this place and (laughs) and locked me in the side room while her and Tony are going to take over the real estate podcast here. They're going to do a great job. So make sure you tune in to listen to that bigger pockets really has a lot of stuff going on as far as different podcasts that they're starting that are catered to different audiences. So I would love if you, the listener, would leave a comment on YouTube for us. Let us know what you like about today's show, what you wish we would have covered, what we could have went deeper into that you would have liked, and what shows you like listening to because there's other people that are reading that and it really helps give them direction as to which direction that they should get started in. Yeah, and if you guys leave the the comments, we can um, go into, we have a rookie YouTube channel too. So I can definitely go on there and go more in depth into anything you wanted to, to hear more about. All right. I'm going to get us out of here. Ashley, any last words that you want to impart on our audience? No, just everybody take action. Uh, That would be the only thing. Uh, Take whatever you learn from this episode and from every episode that David and Brandon put out and make sure you're taking action and just get that, that first start. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. I am looking to buy or build a property management company that can work anywhere in the country because I'm looking to expand very similar to what you're doing, Ashley. So if anybody knows of somebody who wants to start one or already has one that they are considering selling, I'd love to talk to them so I could just buy more properties and have a little bit more control over how things go. As you've seen, Ashley, as you grow, it gets very hard to keep your hand in all the various (laughs) pieces there. So let me know if that's the case. Um, Ashley, great job today. Thank you very much for joining me. I'll let you get back to your conference that we've pulled you away from. Thank you for having me. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you very much for being here. And make sure you catch Ashley and Tony on the next Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. This is David Green for Ashley, the Knowledge Bomb Care, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. 
Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enrollme. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.